welcome to this episode, which is on the protest groups of the mid-19th century. This one's a little difficult topic for people to get their heads around, simply because there are three separate protest groups all operating at the same time. I would thoroughly recommend that before you listen to this episode, you listen closely to the episode on the Chartists. This again is happening at the same time as the Chartists. Indeed, the Chartists tend to try and hijack some of the meetings held by the Anti-Corn Law League in order to get their point across. So what are the three groups that we're going to be looking at? Well, first, there is the Anti-Corn Law League, then there is the Anti-Slavery Movement, and finally, there are the Factory and Social Reformers. These groups are not necessarily interlinked, but they share some common features. And it's these common features that are quite useful to us when we're having a look at how power and the people has shifted from the government to the people. Because these groups, in different ways, actually manage to carry through quite wide-ranging and far-reaching reforms in the teeth of government opposition. So, first of all, we have the Anti-Corn Law League. What are the Corn Laws? Well, the Corn Laws are introduced in the first instance in 1815. And to start with, they are designed to stop the importation of cheap wheat from France at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. The idea here is to protect British farmers and British landowners from the competition caused by cheap import of cheap wheat from foreign lands. This is brilliant if you're a farmer. This is great if you're a landowner whose money comes from the farmers. But if you're a poor person who needs to live off bread, it's not so great. In fact, it sucks. This is a policy, a law, which is great for the well-off and terrible for the poor. Why? Because what it does is it makes bread more expensive. And bread is, largely speaking, what most of the poor people live off. So now we're in a situation where bread is more expensive and it starts to cause some major problems. It starts to cause starvation and it starts to cause some food rioting in various industrial centres around the country. And that's the key. The unrest in the industrial centres draws the attention of this new emerging middle class business owners because it is their workers who are no longer tied to the land and are now living in these large industrial centres who are reliant on bread for their diet and they can no longer afford to buy bread. So these men, these emerging middle classes start to try and put pressure on the politicians to change the Corn Laws. Why don't they? Well, as you will remember from our work on the Chartists, in this period, most of the people elected to Parliament are quite well off and most of them tend to be landowners. Therefore, a law which protects the interests of landowners and protects the interests of rich farmers is certainly going to have the support of members of Parliament and definitely the House of Lords. Therefore, no repeal of the Corn Laws can get through. Repeal means to stop a law, to reverse it and to get rid of it. And there is no way that the Corn Laws are going to be repealed as long as you have these entrenched interests in the House of Lords. 
Indeed, the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, is by natural inclination a, a free trader. He doesn't believe in taxes and barriers to trade between countries. But he can't do anything about it as long as his party, the Conservative Party, is dominated in the Lords by these landowners and these rich farmers. But the pressure from below starts to drive change. And the pressure from below is led by the Anti-Corn Law League, organised up and down the country by middle-class, educated, wealthy individuals. Two of the leading figures you need to know about are Richard Cobden and John Bright, and they're both members of Parliament, but not from the landed classes. They're members of Parliament from the middle classes. And they start to drive this organisation. And the organisation and its methods are what's really interesting here. Because unlike the Chartists, who simply put in three petitions which didn't work, the Anti-Corn Law League launches a broad approach. They do petitions, yes, but they also do public meetings and speeches. They have a list of agreed speakers who can move around the country using the new railway system to quickly move from town to town to city to city. They have articles published in newspapers. They publish their own newspapers. They even have these pamphlets which are posted out using another new revolutionary thing of the age, this idea of the penny post. This incredible, mind-blowing idea that you can spend a penny on one stamp, a little black stamp, put it on an envelope, and it will arrive anywhere else in the country the next day. That's a godsend for communication and for trying to get things out. So you have these articles, you have these newspapers, you have these pamphlets going up and down, and then they start to apply pressure to Parliament. They start to apply pressure to the people in power. And they do this electorally. They move members of the Anti-Corn Law League into constituencies. They club together to buy property so that these members of the Anti-Corn Law League can vote in elections. And every time there is a hustings for an election, members of the Anti-Corn Law League are there and they are asking the candidates, are you for repeal of the Corn Laws? Will you repeal the Corn Laws? They make every election about the Corn Laws. And also, don't forget that in the 1830s, you have the Great Reform Act, so you have more people who are able to vote, and these people are voting in line with the Anti-Corn Law League. And so this pressure coming from down at the grassroots level, this organisation pushing upwards, gives Peel the support he needs, along with the Whigs, in order to force through a repeal of the Corn Laws. And that is the real thing to remember about the Anti-Corn Law League. They are successful. In 1846, the Corn Laws are repealed. Peel has to fall on his sword and resign as Prime Minister to get it done, but get it done he does. And the Corn Laws are repealed. This is a major victory for ordinary working people over a government which is dominated by the landed classes, getting their interests through Parliament. The long-term effects of this, of course, are that people have more disposable income because they're not having to spend as much money on food. But there are also other groups who are watching these tactics, this success, and they're thinking about how they can use it themselves.
One of the other groups that's operating at roughly the same time, although slightly earlier, is the abolitionist movement to do with the slave trade. Now, abolition, remember, is the word that means getting rid of something, doing away with an institution, like the idea of abolishing geography because it's just colouring in. And here, again, you have a number of individuals driving the desire for change. But the reasoning this time is slightly different. You see, with the Anti-Corn Law League, the reason behind the drive for change is largely economic. And here, it's religious. The idea that slavery is unchristian. Now, this is quite a brave approach to take because Britain has been involved in the slave trade from the very beginning. Indeed, there's an argument to be made that Britain owns the slave trade. After all, Britain's greatest genius has always been the ability to move things from place to place by sea in the most efficient fashion. It doesn't matter whether the cargo is cotton or pepper or spices or wool or people. We're still the best at it and we make money off it. So getting rid of the slave trade is actually a massive economic blow to the lifeblood of Britain. But these people decide that it is morally unacceptable that Britain should be responsible in the buying and selling of other human beings. And therefore, they start to make a case to get rid of it. Now, how do they go about doing it? Well, here again, we have a number of people providing a drive. But again, these are middle class, educated people with some wealth and some leisure time. And they organize themselves into committee. And each member of the committee takes a different approach it takes over a different part of the running of the organization central direction something which is sadly missing from the Chartist movement so who are these kind of people that are involved now at the grassroots down at the bottom a lot of this organization is through chapels and churches from town to town and village to village but the driving people are William Wilberforce in Parliament he's a member of MP he's a member of Parliament who stands up and speaks against slavery repeatedly. He also presents the petition to Parliament. You've got Granville Sharp in the law courts arguing for specific slaves to be freed in specific cases and making the broader point about who actually owns a slave to start driving the argument about whether anybody can actually ever own another person. At the same time, you've got Clarkson, who collects information, who collects data, who collects pictures and testimonies and evidence, which he then presents to the British people to show exactly how vile the conditions are. On top of this, you've got Equiano, a freed slave himself, who writes a memoir of his time as a slave, which is put out to the British people and helps them see what the conditions are like, but also to start to think of slaves as human beings. You have other people who make smaller contributions. You have Hannah Moore, who's a poet. And this is interesting because what Moore tells us is that this movement is moving outside of the purely political and into the artistic. You have poems, you have paintings, you have books, you have plays, you have songs. You also have Josiah Wedgwood, the maker of fine porcelain and pottery, who creates tea sets. He creates plates, memorabilia, to get the message across about the evils of slavery. He also creates badges for people to wear to identify themselves as members of the movement. 
It's not just in England, though, and it's not just white middle-class people. There are slave uprisings around the world at the same time. In 1605, you had the rising in Jamaica, which sent shockwaves around the Caribbean. But at this period in San Dominique, there's a rebellion in 1804, where the sugar fields are burned and slavery is abolished. So all of this, the external pressures coming from the slave rebellions, which are showing that the African slaves transported to the New World are not going to just sit and take this anymore. But you've also got the thing at home, which is now making it more difficult to morally swan around the country with the money you're making from the slave trade. It's making it socially unacceptable. All of these things drive together to actually lead to the abolition of the slave trade. In 1807, the slave trade itself is abolished. And finally, in 1833, there's the Abolition of Slavery Act, which means that slavery itself is illegal in Britain and in the British Empire. Again, it works. Unlike the Chartists, this is successful. And that's the key thing to take away from these two. Unlike the Chartists, they are successful and they win. So what's the long-term impact of the abolition of slavery? Well, obviously, you now have all the slaves freed. But that's not necessarily all wine and roses, because now these freed slaves find themselves having to compete for lower-paid work with other free people. Their living conditions do not improve in any meaningful way, although they do now have some basic human rights. But don't imagine that their lives immediately get better straight away. Secondly, smuggling of slaves and other people becomes very widespread. And this is not regulated. As we see today, modern slavery still exists. So you can draw a line from the abolition of slavery to the continuation of the slave trade today. But now it's not regulated and nobody's watching it. The final reform group that we'll look at isn't really one reform group. It's not an organisation like the Anti-Corn Law League or a loose confederation of people aiming for the same thing like the Chartists or the Abolition of Slavery movement. This is what we group together, all these various people who are aiming for the same things, factory and social reform. In 1750, the Industrial Revolution hits Britain like uh, a bomb. And the entire fabric of society is ripped up and changed almost immediately. There is a mass rush, an exodus of people to the cities where there is work in the new factories. But these factories are dangerous, they are dirty, and the employers are not exactly interested in what we would call health and safety. There are many accidents, many injuries, working conditions are poor, and working hours are horrific. But if you complain, you can simply be sacked because there are a hundred people who've just arrived from the countryside ready to take your job. But again, here, it is about communication. Just like Clarkson communicating the conditions of the slaves, here, when people find out about what's being done in the factories, especially what women and children are being required to do, then you suddenly get a huge outpouring of public desire for change, which is harnessed by a number of people to affect real change, which makes real people's lives better. But again, public pressure harnessed by communication, driving the desire for change and leading to government action. So, who have we got? Well, we've got Michael Sadler, 
who's a Member of Parliament. And he's driving factory reform, specifically around children. The idea of a 10-hour day for children, the 10-hour movement. You've got Lord Shaftesbury, who is a member of the House of Lords, driven by his Christian faith and despair at the state of the children working in these factories. So he supports the 10-hour movement. He wants education for the children in there. You've got Robert Owen. Another factory reformer. He's a mill owner, but a socialist. He wants equality. And he wants the workforce to be happy because he thinks a happy workforce is more important than mere profit. So he, again, supports the 10-hour movement. He, in his own mills, introduces the eight-hour working day in 1810. He opens a school in his factory for the children who are working there. And he has a social area for people to go. You've got Edwin Chadwick who you may remember from your work in Year 9 about the health reform in the cities. Well, he wants to improve the health of people, so he looks at the causes of poverty. He is the one who starts having a look at the idea of how sanitation is the cause of cholera rather than miasma. You have Elizabeth Fry, using driven by her Christian faith. She's a Quaker, if you remember them, from our work on the Civil War. And she wants to help the poor, and she's interested in prison reform. She opens a school, and she opens a chapel in Newgate Prison, which is the main women's prison in London. She gets prison reform mentioned and talked about in Parliament. And she's also heavily involved in improving the conditions for women who are being transported to Australia. If you remember the idea of transportation that we talked about when we talked about the Tollpuddle Martyrs, conditions on the ships were particularly horrible for women. And she drives the idea of reform in that area. And finally, you've got Josephine Butler. Her entire family's involved in social reform and was involved in the anti-slavery movement. And again, driven by her Christian faith. And she is campaigning for the rights of poor women who have been forced into prostitution. She does a number of things. First off, she wants to arrange protection for women who are arrested as prostitutes, who were, in this period, largely treated as carriers of disease, spreaders of filth. She also campaigns to have the age of sexual consent raised. In this period, the age of consent is 13. So basically children are sent out to work as prostitutes. Well, she wants to make that illegal, so she has the age of consent. She campaigns for it to be raised to 16. So how successful are they? Well, in 1833, you get the Factory Act. And the Factory Act applies to all textile mills, except silk, because silk's a luxury good. No children under nine can be employed in factories. Children aged nine to 13 could only work for 48 hours a week, no more than nine hours a day. 13 to 18-year-olds could work no more than 69 hours a week. Children under 13 had to attend school for two hours a day. And there were also inspectors appointed. Only four, but still better than none, whose job it was to go around all the textile mills in the country and make sure that these acts were actually being followed. You also get the Mines Act of 1842. Now this one means that women and children under 10 are not allowed to work underground and no child under the age of 15 could be in charge of the winding machines at the top. The problem there is that children aren't strong enough to really man manhandle those properly and there's an awful lot of injuries that come from them working the winches. The thing is, these reforms are great, and they do make a material impact on people's lives. But a lot of workers feel like they don't go far enough. So it is worth bearing in mind 
that these reforms that come through the work of these individuals that we've discussed, Shaftesbury, Owen, Chadwick, Fry, Butler, although they make conditions better, what they actually highlight to the workers and the working classes is that things aren't improving quick enough and things aren't good enough. And it is on that basis that they decide they have to organise and they have to start looking out for their own interests. And that brings us back to the idea of trades unions. So, what are the key things to remember about these reform and reformers? The first thing to be aware of is what's driving them. In some cases it's economic, in some cases it's religious, in some cases it's just the idea of fairness and equality. Secondly, you need to be aware of the methodologies that they apply. The idea that in some cases it's to do with driving public opinion, in other cases it's to do with applying pressure to the government where it counts, through elections, through the legislature, getting people in Parliament on your side. And thirdly and finally, you need to be aware about the impact which each one had, which is they were all successful, albeit in limited ways in some cases, but they were all successful in ways in which the Chartists weren't. And if you are clear on why these groups succeeded, and the Chartists failed, you understand the importance of the methodology and you understand the importance of communication to these outcomes. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.